Hey, what is up designers and welcome back to the Surviving the Cancel podcast. In this podcast episode, what I'm going to talk to you about is what is and how you can build a social business and how my understanding of what is a social business came out of the, actually the first time in my life that I was canceled. Okay, now this may be a more lengthy podcast episode and so if you want to shortcut everything that I'm going to tell you within this episode here and get straight to the source of how to build a social business. Um, you know, I took 15 to 30 of some of the most extremely wealthy, extremely influential uh, people behind some of the most prominent movements here in the 21st century. And I jam-packed them all on a summit called Surviving the Cancel Summit. And essentially, these 15 to 30 speakers, they teach you like in f- how in four weeks they would build a social business based on how they've already done it how they've already built mass social movements in their own business in their own life um and so if you want to listen to how these guys you know and these gals um step by step would do it all over again from scratch if they were canceled and lost everything go to survivingthecancel.com www.survivingthecancel.com and go register for absolutely free it doesn't cost you anything. All you have to do is enter your email address, go to survivingcancel.com. So if you want to shortcut the podcast, head to that link. It'll be down in the description below. You can just press the button and it'll take you over there, okay? But, uh, you know, in order to answer what is a social business, you know, I kind of got to, you know, go a little bit into the past and give you a little a bit of what the runaway looked like before takeoff. Um, so let me give you an idea of the setting, like what type of environment I came from. You know, when I was, I don't even remember what age I was. I must've been in fourth or fifth grade. Um, I moved into the house that my, you know, family current currently lives in to give you a, a profile of this house. Um, it's a brick townhouse in like the you know, at, at, at the rim of Baltimore city. Okay. Now, if you know anything about Baltimore and Baltimore city, it's not the fanciest city in the world. It's not like, I don't know. It's not like Miami or New York or Los Angeles or anything like that. It's like a small, pretty crappy town sometimes. And it's filled with people that have a lot of bad habits. Um, it's one of the murder capitals of the United States, just to be frank about it. Um, but I remember in fifth grade, I moved into, you know, this small little townhouse in my neighborhood. Uh, like I said, on the rim of Baltimore City, like right up the street from the city line. Like you can see where the city line is because the grass is uncut on the city side and on the county side is cut. And like we live like literally like a block from that line. And uh, I remember coming into this house for the first time and it had three bedrooms uh, it had a bathroom, obviously, and a bathroom in the basement. Even though the bathroom in the basement never had any real function, it was just completely broken and out of whack. There was still a bathroom in the basement, uh, even though the basement had flooding problems and there were mushrooms growing in the back and things like that. You know, it 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 wasn't a, you know a perfect house in hindsight. But I remember coming into this house and been fascinated by the minor details. I remember looking at like the light switches in the house, and when you turned off the lights at night. You know, the light switches glowed kind of like orange, amber in the dark, like the light switches glowed. 
I remember walking into the kitchen and for the first time having a house, because I moved a lot in my life, that had double sinks, okay? Like, there's a sink, but there's another sink beside it. Uh, I still don't know the purpose of that, but anyhow, I remember looking out the back of the house and there being a patio, like a little deck that was like considerably high off the ground, probably like six feet off the ground. And I remember looking at all this stuff and being amazed that was the first time in my life I thought like I like we made it like I thought we were rich rich like I'm like man this 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 is this is insanity and so the house before that Saturn court just to give you a brief uh a brief detailing of the setting uh and and, and kind of give you some clue on as to why I thought we were rich and why I thought we made it you know, uh, at Saturn Court, when we first got there, you know, there were no beds in that house. There were two bedrooms. It was me, my parents, and so it was essentially my parents and their five children. And three of us uh, were assigned to a mattress. Me, me and my two older brothers were assigned to a mattress in one blanket in our room. And in the room across the hall, it was my parents' room. They had their mattress that they both slept on and my two young brothers slept on a mattress like perpendicular to chairs on the floor um so when we moved to the current house that i stay in uh or i used to say before i moved out was it, it was like okay we all had our own bed like we slept on bunk beds at the point in time but we all had our own bed for the first time in, in my life when i was like in fourth and fifth grade and i was like mind-blowing like i thought like i didn't know nobody like that like you know keep in mind this is like not like a suburban townhouse or anything like that this isn't like we don't have like a driveway everybody parallel parks on the street you know fairly regular house but we had a basement too and it was just like three stories like it, it was it was it was, it was kind of next level now there's been a lot of times in my life because of you know me and my family we started in 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 in, in the trenches you know and in, in tough places um that I thought I had witnessed wealth to an insane level. Like even, you know, a few houses before the current house that we reside in, I remember in like in my grandmother's neighborhood, like right across the street, what was we was first in a city zone, you know, at, you know, when we were li- where we were first living, it was like in the city, um, not like the city, like buildings and things like that, but like a neighborhood, a city neighborhood. Um, and I remember the house that I, we were living in. Then I remember this guy down the street. His name was Mr. Cheeks. Um, he was one, he was my first, you know, his son was my first friend and I remember looking at his house and he had like a gate that was like metal and, but, but he could press a button and it could like open like automatically. And he had like a Chrysler and he had a truck with like spinners on it. I thought, I used to think like Mr. Cheeks must be the richest man in the world, like mind blown. And even further beyond the point where, you know, we had moved into the current house we were in. I remember going to high school and meeting people around me that were getting cars at 16, meet my girlfriend, and she has, like, a suburban house, like, a real suburban house. Like, you walk outside at night and be comfortable and, like, thinking that was the richest it could be. Like, there were so many levels of, you know, you know, parts of, you know, parts of my life where I'd seen, like, truthfully modest suburban living and was completely mind-blown. It was like that story that Katie tells when he says... You know, me and my mother moved in a two-bedroom apartment, me, my mother, and my brother, and we thought we made it. You know, it was like that a lot of the times. And so that's kind of the setting in which I grew under. And within that setting, you know, uh, 
within the theme of poverty, uh, there's usually a corresponding sentiment. There are corresponding paradigms. You know, there's a corresponding mindset and a way of seeing, you know, a certain models of seeing the world. You know, people in poverty all correspond to a singular culture most of the time, not everybody. And so, you know, we all dress the same way. We all think the same thing about politics. We all think the same way about rich people, that they got to be corrupt or scamming or something like that. Everybody in poverty likes socialism and, you know, just all sorts of weird isms that, you know, everybody's super religious. Like, there is a culture associated with where we came from. And a lot of this culture was, I think, rooted in, you know, self-preservation and, and, and safety and survival and, and not really as much in, as in thriving and empathizing and helping the world and things like that. So that's the setting I grew up in and that was the sentiment and that's what I learned and knew for a long period of time you know, in my life. But you can imagine that when I was young and I was a little kid, like like my childhood is like is so bizarre looking back on it like I recently about I remember being like five years old staying at home with my older brother who was like four years older than me so he must have been nine it was just us and I remember like cooking like food and all sorts of weird like we had these cheese hot dogs we put in the microwave and you know cook and I my mother told me how to make minute oatmeal and I remember they were gone sometimes it was just us like bizarre you know flashes of memories and, and, and just crazy stuff you know but, uh, you know, the point I'm bringing to this story, like you can imagine, you know, what, w- how these, you know, how it's bizarre to me now, how the inklings of my deviation from that culture first looked. I remember like when I was younger, like in that house that I was talking about, um, where there were the mattresses on the floor before the one I, you know, I currently reside in. Um, I remember you know, that was the first place in which technology has started. Well, first where I started understanding, but where technology had began to break through, you know, break the, the, you know, the thresholds of culture, you know, and make, you know, deviation from it more and more of a likelihood in, in, in the living room of that house, you know, it was, there was a fat chair that my father always sat. It was like a singular chair and he would sit there every day and like eat eggs and bacon. But, uh, next to that chair was like a desk, uh, like a clear little table. And on top of that table was this fat little white thing. Um, and it was a computer. And I don't remember much about the computer, but it wasn't very functional. We had like a blue screen. Uh, it had like one app or whatever you call it. He had these orange floppy disks he would use with it. And every now and then it would be like, you have mail. And that was all the computer did. I mean, I guess he would play games on it. I don't know. You know, we had cell phones lying around the house, like basic flip phones. The Motorola Razor was about to pop off at that time. But they had like regular flip phones and, you know, they had bejeweled on them. And that was the height of their capacity. But as we move, you know, as the years span on and time kind of accelerated by, those small things began to become big things. And when I was in middle school, like the, the basic iPhones started to come out. And internet access became like a widely abundant thing, whereas before it wasn't like people didn't even predict that it would be a real trend or something that was actually, you know, essential to society in any way, shape or form. Like it was just like a toy when I was younger. But I remember, um, you know, as middle school flashed by, even going into high school, you know, technology started to get bigger and better. And 
it was the first time in my life where I started to see things and experience things that were outside of the bubble that I had grown up in. I had started to see other cultures and hear other voices and other opinions and other ways about life. Like the people in, in business that we thought so poorly of that we thought the system was rigged for. I could hear their stories. I could hear their voice. I could hear what they had to say. I could feel their intentions and their clarity and their honesty and their emotions. And, and it wasn't really till I got into high school as a freshman in high school when I got my first inter, you know, personal access to the internet. I got like a Galaxy S3 or something like that. And uh, that was the first internet capable phone that I had. And I remember that was an error in my life where things just started to become right. Like, there's this period in history called the Cambrian explosion. And it's a period where biodiversity just kind of just says, well, we're going to do whatever we want. And it goes insane. And in my brain, there was a Cambrian explosion during that period of time. When I was a freshman in high school, it was the first time I had access to YouTube. And I got on YouTube and I just went crazy that entire year. You know, most of that year, I'm not going to name the other guys because, it's, you know, but it was all across the board in fashion. It was in diet and exercise. And, you know, but one of the main, you know, one of the main things I did that year was log on to YouTube and watch this guy called Owen Cook every single day. And he was a pickup artist. And Owen Cook, you know, along with this other plethora of artists on YouTube, taught me just so much about life that was contrary to how I grew up and how I live. Like, you know, I started to have these ideas, these thoughts, like maybe KFC, eating KFC isn't the right thing to do every day. Maybe you should meditate, even though it's like a weird thing that you see on TV. Maybe it has a legitimate function. Maybe charisma is not predetermined by your genetics. Maybe it is a muscle that you tend to and grow like everything else. Culture for me was all I had known, you know, my culture, the culture of poverty, the, the culture of this little bubble that I was living in. Everybody that I ever known in, you know, in my life personally, which were the only people that I knew, had grew up as carbon copies of one another. But on the internet, I was meeting these people that were totally different and had totally different, you know, ways of viewing the world. And when I was a teen, I would have, a, you know, just sit in my room all day on the internet and have epiphany after epiphany after epiphany after epiphany after epiphany. There was so much culture shock within that span of time like you couldn't even imagine. And the person that I started to become was so diverse from the shell of, a, you know, this, this clone that I had became from my upbringing. And it, it you know, it, it started to cause its own problems. It, it, you know, the deviation was so great. So tell me if this is something that you can relate to. In my teenhood, I had access to paradigms that were so unfamiliar yet so powerful that it made my mind spin for hours and hours and nights and days and, and weeks and months on end. And I got into a pattern with, with each new epiphany where I would get excited about it. And I would get so excited to the point where I could no longer contain it. And because like my teenage hormones and things like that and is, is going crazy, I would just run and tell the nearest person. Is that something you experienced before? Like, is that something that you relate to? If that is something that you can relate to, how does that usually go? You know, you, you, you grow up in mainstream society and you get mainstream ideas and mainstream thoughts out of it. But as you begin to become an individual, 
as you begin to become original in your thoughts and ideas and begin to, you know, make this chimera of who you are from from the world, you start to develop unpopular opinions. And how were your unpopular opinions met within society or met within your household? It's usually not good, right? And so the pattern that symbolized my teenage years most was learning a paradigm that you know, just by knowing the people around me and listening to them and really understanding them on a, a level that I consider, you know, prim, almost primal, it was so deep. You know, I would learn a paradigm that I knew could change the people around me. I, they could change their life, an unpopular opinion, an unpopular model of the world. I would learn something that I just knew could revolutionize people's lives around me and make them infinitely more joyful, infinitely more successful, infinitely more confident infinitely better in, in whatever it is they do and whatever it is they want to do. Um, I had a lot of paradigm upgrades that I'm just like, if people understood this, everything would change. I had so many paradigms where the potential of it just seems so colossally infinite to me. One of those paradigms, just to give you an example, is, you know, living in poverty, you started the, the basic paradigm. I, you know, my only option is a nine to five and I have to kind of go to college in order to break away from that. And the best I can do is $100,000 a year, maybe as a judge or architect, because these are some of the jobs that I thought I'd take on when I was in middle school, like judge or architect or, or a strong, you know, uh, maybe if you're daring, like an astronaut or things like that. I remember when I was in middle school, I would tell myself over and over and over again, you know, you're not going to be like the rest of these dumb guys. You're never going to just drop out and become a rapper you're going to go and be the first to get a college degree and get a good job and you know that was my life in high school I unlocked you know a, a severely contrasting paradigm which was you don't want to live the nice about nine to five life you want to be an entrepreneur you want to start a business and so that's just a little example of what I'm saying but I got myself caught in the pattern of having these ideas that could that could I knew could just change people's life and going to tell people about it, whether it's a friend, whether it's family members, my mother, father, a stranger, and being met with complete resistance. Like every time, and I know a lot of you can relate to this, I went to tell my parents or somebody that I cared about this thing that I knew could just make a total difference for them. It felt like I was talking to a brick wall. And, you know, when I was met with that brick wall, knowing how important this was, I would just campaign and campaign and campaign to be understood. You know, the way that these people on the Internet and, you know, had spoken would give me epiphanies. And I wanted so badly for these people to have the epiphanies, but I wasn't able to deliver them the same excitement or the same, you know, understanding and fandom of this principle that I just learned. And that was a cycle that pretty much defined my entire teenhood. OK, now. That's the question that we all have in our brain, right? How is it that we take the unpopular opinions inside of us and you transmit that pop unpopular opinion, like you explain it to someone else in a way that not only they get it, but they become a diehard fan of that unpopular opinion, of that idea. You have these seeds in you that can revolutionize everything. How is it that you give it to somebody and make them understand it and love it the way you love it? And how do you do that on a mass level? Those were the kind of things that drove me and kept me awake every night 
when I was like 14, 15, 16, 17 in high school. I would look at the the landscape that was, you know, because people were advancing down their own paths, driven by their own paradigms. Um, I would look at the landscape around me when I was in high school and it was getting progressively worse. My brother was going to jail. We were getting, you know, we, you know, people around me are poor. People around me are developing smoking addictions. People around me are struggling to find even soundness in their mental health. Like, People around me are, are, are developing coping mechanisms and drinking and smoking and, and, and smoking weed and, and running the streets and robbing and stealing and killing because these are literally what my peers are doing. And seeing the rise of, you know, things counter, you know, things, things that I felt were, you know, seeing the rise of these toxic principles and toxic paradigms in society, I wanted to combat them when I was young. I wanted to... to to show people that there are better ways. Like we can be happy, we can be successful, we can have things in life. I started to to, to wake up, <laughs> like they say, like you woke. Like I started, I started to wake up when I was in high school, and I wanted other people to wake up so bad, and it felt like there was something blocking me. Okay, now I've been beating this little section of ideas for a dead horse, like a dead horse, for a little bit, and uh, I, you know, so the question became, how do I create social movements? How do you create masses of people who are diehard fans of these ideas that I have in myself? And I know I'm being long-winded right now, and so if you want to skip this entire podcast episode, uh, I would recommend you listen to your entire thing. Just go down to the description below and click the link, www.survivingthecancel.com, survivingthecancel.com, survivingthecancel.com, and these summit speakers kind of break down how to do what I'm talking about in this episode pretty much in an hour. 15 to 30 people on the Surviving the Cancel Summit break down how it is that you, you know, build a machine that not only propagates, but accelerates the propagation, if that's the type, if, if that's the word, of your unpopular opinions into society. How do you create social movements and, and profitable social movements around these ideas that you have? That's what these people and how they've already done it and how they do it again in four weeks if they were canceled and lost it all. That's pretty much what the summit is about. Go to survivingthecancel.com if you want to listen to that summit. It's absolutely free to register. So just go and enter your email address and, and you know, take the summit uh, and go, you know, listen to some of these interviews that are out. Uh, but yeah, this process expanded on and, and it became more exaggerated with time. By the time high school had flashed by uh, and I was in college, you know, I was sold completely on, you know, paradigms that were so far deviated from the mainstream paradigms that I couldn't even do mainstream things anymore. So I went to college, community college, because I had so-so grades in high school and I got rejected from every college, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I went to community college uh, for a semester. And in that semester, I tried to do a little something at first, but I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't want to go to college anymore. I didn't want to do the mainstream thing anymore. I wanted to be on my own path and build my own businesses and to make my own music and do the things that really matter to me. Okay. And uh, so there were kind of like two goals moving over top of each other on, you know, one of my, you know, the, the top goal, you know, the external worldly goal, I guess, was I wanted to, at that point in time, I wanted to live the life that I wanted. I wanted to be rich famous, free, you know, I wanted to, to explore the world and, 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 and be somebody. Okay. 
then it's the kind of internal goal, like the kind of spiritual goal. The goal corresponding with that worldly goal or, or desire or whatever you want to call it was I wanted people to not only see what I'm doing and wake up and want to do the same things for themselves, but I wanted to spread my popular opinions and make them kind of mainstream. I wanted to build culture around. I wanted to make my popular opinions mainstream culture. I wanted people to understand these things that really helped them and could really change their lives and, and, and were beautiful and infinitely more powerful than the paradigms that they already had adopted from the, you know, the hard situations they grew up in. I wanted people like me to see what we can be essentially. So those were the two kind of goals that was, that was inside of me at that point. And so when I got to college for the first time, I stopped going to class <laughs> class and I'm just, I, you know, this was 2016. And so I got kicked out of college with a zero GPA, you know, I stopped going. I had literal, like a literal zero, not a fake zero, but they removed my financial aid and they said, you're done. And they threw me to the streets within the same year, December 1st of 2016. That was May 20th of 2016, December 1st of 2016, uh, 2016. I, you know, I just had enough of my job. I got an argument with the manager and I walked out in the middle of shift in the pouring rain. And that is where my campaign to kind of reach these two goals began. At first, it was an exciting thing. I think everybody was pretty excited and curious about the, you know, the little move that was happening. But it didn't really stay that way for long. Um, between uh, December 1st, 2016 and the tail end of 2017, uh, where, it, you know, you, life itself kind of was like, uh, like uh, you know, when a stock's like going down, 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 and it hit, hits rock bottom. That's kind of what my life was. Whereas out the gate, Everything started positive. You know, I immediately got to, you know, fresh out of college, f- fresh out of a job, started starting to make businesses. Uh, and I was hopeful and I would brag to my family, like, this is going to go good. This is going to go great. Da, 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 da. Um, well, out the gate, things started very hopeful. They got very dim very quickly. Um, to make a long story short, uh, I found myself in the middle of 2017 um, hiding from my family. Okay. Everything started out cherry, but with time people for whatever reason became uncomfortable with the idea that I was a deserter of the status quo. You know, when you become unique, when you become an individual and think for yourself, you become a deserter of the status quo. And while people, while people might fancy that and think it's cute at first, uh, they won't hold that opinion forever. It wasn't, a few, you know, but a few weeks until this hiatus from work and school that my parents started to ask me like, okay, when are you going to go back? To, I didn't tell them for a while, but after I told them, they're like, okay, you need to go back to school. Okay. You need to go back to work. And these are the comments that I would hear every now and then. And, and what I mean by desert of the status quo and people hate you, just think of like a simple example in society. Like if you, the status quo is like being straight. If you decide like to be gay, you know, even though that's your own business and you can do exactly what you want because of your life, people would just hate you for whatever reason. They'll say, oh, you know, they, they'll, they'll just throw, throw dirt on your name and try to pretend like they're not and, you know, all types of things. You're a deserter of the status quo. And so the status quo society, once you think for yourself for whatever reason, it just starts to want to crush you. I can't explain it. It's a phenomenon I don't understand. But that's kind of what, what, what happens. You know, they were, oh, you should go to school. Oh, you know, maybe maybe a little bit down the line. Oh, they would throw in little snarky comments, you know, backhanded things. Oh, how's the business thing going? Oh, did you get a sale yet? Oh, you know, you said we we're going to be millionaires. You haven't made a dollar. What's going on? Uh, progress a little further. 
you know, at the, you know, let's say it's the onset of 2017, so it's been a few months that I've been in business. Things at that point in time had began, I remember distinctly, to turn malicious. You know, people would call me a leech, a mooch, you know, say I wasn't a man, say I was a parasite. Uh, some of the things were so mean, I wouldn't even dare reiterate them. Like, I was, I was called a bum. I was called, you know, when are people, when do you realize that everybody around you is just waiting for you to grow up and stop playing around? Like I was, I was told everything under the sun simply because I decided to become an entrepreneur at 20 years old and, 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 you know, walk my own path instead of walking the, the path that's described to me by the status quo. And it like, it, it, I hope you're relating to this story. Are you, are you feeling me on this one or, or am I just talking? You know, I want y'all to really let me know in whatever way you can, whether it's through social media, like if you feel this story. But uh, it got so bad to the point where, you know, it, it was just messing up my mind. It was all in my head. And it got so bad to the point where living in the same house as my parents and my siblings and, you know, in the same communities as my friends, I was pretty much in like stealth mode. Like I would leave my house at like 7 a.m. in the morning every morning and go out with my girlfriend and come home at like 2 a.m. at night just because I didn't want anybody to see my face, just because I didn't want anybody to bother me, just because I didn't want anybody to ask me how the business was going when it wasn't going anywhere. You know, and when I couldn't go out, I would stay in my room all day from sunup to sundown and I wouldn't eat a shred. You know, it got so bad because I needed water and, and, and food like my migraines would 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 literally just destroy all my thoughts. And I used to just sit in the room just looking at Owen Cook and Russell Brunson and Ty Lopez just trying to figure out, OK, how do I fix this business to save face and not be embarrassed anymore? You know, on the days where everyone had work in school, everyone would get up and, you know, go somewhere and have responsibility and earn their keep and, and, and bring home the bacon. And that's something I felt bad about, too. I felt like because of these comments, leech, mooch, all these like I felt like, you know, to a degree at 20 years old, they were true, you know. And so it got into the point where, like, since everybody had their own obligations and everybody was contributing, that's something that bothered me on top of that. And and when I did go out of my room, when I did stay home to eat, I would make sure everybody had left the house first. Like maybe they go out on a ride or go to the store or something like that. I would sneak downstairs and eat food because I didn't want anybody to see me eating because I didn't feel like I deserved it. And I was dropping weight and I was super depressed and I was I was I was I was just kind of like in like in a groundhog day hellish cycle and completely disillusioned. And I was just sitting in my room in the dark all day just trying to figure out how to fix it. And sometimes I would cry and sometimes I would just sleep and sometimes I would just just look and stare at the wall. And and I kind of just I kind of just didn't know what to do anymore. Like everything kind of had wilted around me into that winter and the days because it was winter got so dark so fast. Um. 2017 for me was a year where it, it was a super rough year and you know as much as I tried to hide as much as I didn't want anybody to just see me as much as I didn't want to exist people did and the message and the theme of go get a school go to school get a job you know or at least get a job at least get a job you know rang in my mind over and over again and it, you know I kind of I kind of broke so in September of 2017, I started working at the 4 a.m. shift at the local Target and you're probably like where is he going with the story like 
is there a purpose to what you're telling? Like, like I'm, I'm getting there. You got to bear with me. I, I don't, I don't mean for this podcast episode to be long. Actually, I recorded this for like an hour early and I stopped it because it was too long. But it might just have to be a long episode. Um, so if you want to shortcut all this and just learn exactly what it is I'm teaching you in this podcast episode, just go to www.survivingthecancel.com and register for the free summit. Now, there's going to be 15 to 30 people on the summit that are highly wealthy, highly influential, responsible for some of the biggest social movements in our community uh, and across the internet. And they're teaching you how they would do it all again if they got canceled and had to start from scratch or had to, you know, reverse the cancel, essentially. www.survivingthecancel.com All right, so what is up, designers? Um, This is where I'm cutting part one of this episode, which I believe there will be about four parts. Part two should be posted tomorrow. And if you like part one, you're going to like part two even more. We're getting down to the nit- or we're getting or we're approaching the nitty gritty of how you actually make a social business, what a social business is and all of those things. Um, if you're wondering where the story is going, I want to foreshadow a little bit to give you some anticipation for part two. Man, part two, we're going to talk about, you know, getting into new job that I was working, uh, the complications with that. And then all of that, how all of that accumulated and ceased with uh, an armed robbery situation where, you know, I thought I was going to lose my life. Uh, so, long story short, man, episode two is, 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 is crazy. So you want to you wanna look out for that. Like I said, it should be posted tomorrow from when you hear this right now because it's actually already recorded. And then I believe this will be about a four-part series, so there'll be a part three and part four, and it'll break down perfectly how you can, uh, you know, create a social business and uh, things like that. So, once again, man, if you don't actually feel like waiting and sitting around for part two to come out and then part three and part four, which it'll only be about, you know, four days or three days cumulatively before all the episodes are out, um, you can go to www.survivingthecancel.com and just learn the nitty you know no basically the mechanics behind what a social business is and how people are creating these things uh from the 15 to 30 summit speakers i organized that are the best in the world at doing so to talk about that so once again surviving cancel.com uh it's going to be amazing now the summit is free right now uh the summit doesn't air for a little while but if you register ahead of time it'll be free and you can get in on that early and enjoy the benefits of that. So, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say. This is Dallas with Surviving to Cancel, and I'll see you in the next episode. You don't want to miss it.